right, and next up uh, we do have uh, Gerald Shelley, and Gerald is a partner at the law firm of Fenimore Craig. Uh, he has been a bankruptcy attorney for, would you believe, almost 30 years? Hard to believe, but about a, a thousand years ago, Gerald and I uh, you know, grew up as baby lawyers together, and uh, so he is a distinguished bankruptcy attorney, generally representing trustees. And for your information, Gerald, uh, um, we have five judges in the room who were elected in November and took the bench in January. Uh, we have our presiding judge, uh, Steve McMurray, sitting next to you. And we do have three judges who've been on the bench longer than, than January of varying tenures. Uh, so um, uh, thank you very much for coming. And, and we're going to get a, a basic background on how bankruptcy affects our justice court business. <clears throat> you know, I was listening to that discussion and actually the question at the end there about pegging the judge's salary. And, and you may have had your answer, but that, that starts all the way with at the top with the U.S. Supreme Court. You know, they have a salary and then appellate judges are pegged at some percentage of that and all, you know, all the way down to the federal system. So to see it in the state system doesn't surprise me, but I don't know your system like I know the federal system. It's just that's uh, it's the way Congress has chosen to do it. I guess if the legislature thinks that's good enough. Uh, well, thanks for having me today. Charlie, how long, how long do we have? Uh, an hour, an hour and a half. Okay. Um, I bet we, we can get through this uh, more quickly than that. Uh, your materials, let me just talk to you about them at 30,000 feet and then we'll drill down. I think it'll I think be a lot easier to digest. And my guess is most of this stuff you run into, and this is sort of a, a, a refinement. But what I've done on this, uh, the, the second slide on the first page, Bankruptcy overview. What we're going to talk about in this hour or so is one, bankruptcy jurisdiction and how it impacts or bangs against the jurisdiction that you all have. And then uh, we're going to get into the three types of bankruptcies. You hear about sevens, elevens, thirteens. There are some other chapters too. I'll mention to you what they are, but, but my guess is you would never see the other specialized chapters. Most of what I think is going to um, come before you is a play on the whole concept of the automatic stay, and that's the next idea down there. There is a, a fictional hypothetical stay that is put into place as quickly as a bankruptcy is filed. I mean, it's, it's that quick. Um, in, in fact, back in the old days before electronic filings, I remember cases where there was going to be a foreclosure sale or a trustee sale at 10 o'clock in the morning and we're down to the bankruptcy court. You know, at 9.40, 9.45, going to get that thing stamped and make sure that it's stamped before 10 o'clock so that it stays in place so that the foreclosure sale can't take place. And it's that, it is that simple. It's just the law says it's there, so it's there. Um, and we'll talk about how it comes into play, where it comes into play, what the exceptions are, how long it lasts, and those sorts of things. But my guess is that's, that's probably the area of bankruptcy law that intersects most with what, with what you all see. Um, next in line is the concept of dischargeability. That's the, the whole idea behind at least a consumer filing of Chapter 7 bankruptcy is to get a discharge of his or her or their debts. 
And there's a surprising little twist on what discharge means, and it's different from what most folks think it means. And we'll come back to that when we get there. And then um, there's some attachments and some special notes that we'll go through. And I think what I want to do is end with just sort of a, um, a garden variety hypothetical that in my mind is what you're going to see the most. And we can kind of walk it through from the beginning to the end. And, and, and then we can dissect it and you can ask questions or you can tell me, no, that's not what we're seeing. Here's what we're seeing. And we can sort of drill down and figure it all out that way. Um, does that sound like a good way to, to approach this? No. Okay. So let's go to the slide. The slide's on page two. <clears throat> bankruptcy jurisdiction. I think only bankruptcy lawyers would care about this, but bankruptcy law is one sentence in the in Article One of the United States Constitution. It says there shall be a uniform bankruptcy law throughout the several states. That's it. Then they moved on to other things. Now, question for you: Why? Why did the founding fathers think that bankruptcy law should be uniform throughout the several states? What's the reason for that? No debtors' prisons. Well, okay, it was clear they didn't want debtors' prisons. You know, we can go back to the biblical um, ideas of taking firstborn children for debts and throwing people into debtors' prisons, and certainly there were in England at the time of the Constitution, and so founding fathers said not here. But tell me how not having debtors' prisons means you ought to have the same law in every single state. Exactly. What, and, and they had some early cases under before the Constitution where a guy from South Carolina slips across the border to North Carolina because the law for credit for debtors is more favorable in that state. So guess what happens? It's where everybody goes, right? Now it's interesting, and you see this in the news. Um, there are some last vestiges of that. Uh, that still are, um, uh, are are part of our law. Exemptions. Exemptions, exactly. And and I've seen it in my practice in in two or three settings. But the most maybe the the the, the most interesting example was um, O.J. Simpson. So he's in trouble. Uh, some of you maybe you know that, right? He got in trouble. <laughs> and and, uh, and 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 of course he gets he, he he gets off on the criminal side, but then they tag him with a very large judgment on the civil side, right? So now what what's going to happen? Well, in anticipation of that, O.J. moves to Florida. Why does he move to Florida? Florida has a huge um, homestead exemption. Exactly. Florida has an unlimited, had at the time, an unlimited homestead exemption. So basically, liquidate all your assets, buy the biggest palace you can find in Florida, and Clarence. come get me. Yeah. In Texas, the same thing. You know, big ranch, big homestead. Now, those have been modified down a little bit, and there have been some fights, but the idea is, you see that very thing that the Founding Fathers were worried about, where people are jumping jurisdictions because things are more favorable. It is the case that Arizona is more favorable for homesteads than Iowa. Uh, last I checked, Iowa gave you like a $5,000 homestead or something. Here in Arizona, you've got 150000 And think about that. Why would Florida, Texas, Arizona, why are our legislatures more willing to, to be liberal on, on uh, real property homestead exemptions. Or retirees. Yeah. Yeah, come, come to the sun. Yeah. Come live out here, right? We have developers, we have Sun City, we have those sorts of things. And so they influence our legislature. Our legislature says that. And so folks from the, 
from the snowy cold Midwest uh, or from Buffalo, if Charlie's from, can move out here um, and live in the sun and protect 150 grand in a house, which, which even in this state now protects a modest house. More than you need to know, but I always tell people, really the, the homestead is, is probably closer to 200 than 150. And the reason for that is, by the time you force the sale, get the realtor paid, uh, the 10% cost of the sale and all those things, and then if you have to give the first 150 back to the homeowner, um, nobody's right, nobody's going to do it. So what you see with bankruptcy trustees is that their threshold is, I don't know, 180, 185, something like that as sort of the de facto homestead. Uh, used to be, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm jumping ahead, but we're there. Used to be in Arizona, you had to <coughs> record a notice of homestead, a declaration of homestead. Legislature did away with that, I don't know, 20 years ago. If you live in that house and otherwise qualify for the homestead, you get it, which creates the last thing I'll say about <coughs> the problem of well, what if you have a cabin up in the woods? What if all your equity is in the cabin in the woods and you don't have any equity in your home in Maricopa County? Move. <laughs> yeah, when I, when I told uh, an elderly woman who had an, uh, an encumbered home in Carefree and an unencumbered home in Sedona, I said, you know what, put your driver's license address in Sedona, register to vote in Sedona, every incident that you can think of that has to do with where you live, put it in Sedona. And I said, reach back into the old law and record a notice of homestead. You don't have to do it anymore, but that's one additional notice of intent. Those fights, I think, will rarely play out in your court. Those fights play out in the superior court because your right to exemption exists whether you're in bankruptcy or not. It's just sort of magnified when you go into bankruptcy, though. so the bankruptcy judges deal with it. Now back to the Founding Fathers. What, what, um, what we've done with bankruptcy law then is we have uh, federally... Excuse sure. me, Gerald. Just let me say, Jeff. Uh -huh. While we don't, aren't going to deal with those kind of fights, those exemptions will come into play in justice court when somebody's trying to collect a judgment, you know, garnishment, that sort mm -hmm. of thing. If they're, they're, what they're trying to get the sheriff, the constable to pick up and sell is, is exempt property. The same principle applies in garnishment. It, it does, and we'll, we will get there in more detail, but the last uh, attachment four is the whole uh, Arizona exemption law. I mean, from, from soup to milk or whatever they say, from, from alpha to omega, everything that's allowed. And we'll, we'll glance at those real quick when we get there, but that's the time to point to you. I appreciate you saying that. So, um, so now let's go on. We have that one line in the Constitution that says there shall be a uniform bankruptcy law throughout the several states. That makes bankruptcy law federal. That, that means federal, that, that puts bankruptcy law within the uh, purview of the supremacy clause, meaning bankruptcy law trumps state law um, because it's part of federal law. So our, our, our legislature, our Congress, has given us Title 11 of the United States Code more commonly known as the Bankruptcy Code. Um, and it's a really fine read um, if you have insomnia. Um, otherwise, it's, it's a code like the Internal Revenue Code, like so many others, that it's interactive. It goes back and forth. Every once in a while, you want to pull your hair out because there's an inconsistency. Um, but it's, it's code-based. And those of us that practice in my area sort of live in and out of this code. Um, uh, in fact, I've woken up in the middle of the night several times and had my wife throw the book onto the floor because she doesn't like it in the bed. Um, 
So <coughs> the other part that deals with it is deals with bankruptcy laws, 28 United States Code, and that more has to do with um, jurisdictional rules back and forth between the bankruptcy court and the district court. Now, uh, this this is used you'll find interesting, but I don't think it's it, it, you'll ever find it applicable. There was a, a Supreme Court, United States Supreme Court case, Marathon Oil, in 1983, where the United States Supreme Court said, our bankruptcy courts have no jurisdiction. The bankruptcy law is unconstitutional. And the bankruptcy courts shut down. So Congress scrambled and put together these emergency rules to kind of prop up this house of cards of jurisdiction. And the bankruptcy courts reopened. And about every 20 years, you get an unbelievably complicated, ridiculous case that challenges that premise. The most recent case to challenge the premise, you all know about, but you don't know about. But as you sit here, you don't think you know about. So there was a very, very, we very, very wealthy and very, very old man whose name was Marshall. And Marshall uh, married a, let's see, the, the case is called Stern v. Marshall. The United States Supreme Court case maybe three, four, five years ago that kind of turned bankruptcy jurisdiction on its ear for a while. Marshall uh, was like 90 years old and he had several sons who were in their 70s. Very, very wealthy family. Marshall married... Um, Anna Nicole Smith? Oh, Charlie, don't get ahead of me. <laughs> married this buxom, uh, way too young for him, young lady, and a difference of age named Anna Nicole Smith, exactly. Okay. Now, <laughs> now, Anna Nicole Smith's life was a train wreck. Uh, in fact, my guess is a number of Anna Nicole Smiths come in front of you on a regular basis. Uh, this, <laughs> this Anna Nicole Smith, um, uh, managed to marry this wealthy man, and then he died. And then, now, now his case goes into probate, right? Um, and so, the sons now, the marshals, are fighting Anna Nicole Smith for who gets what, right? Well, the probate court gets about ready to rule when Anna Nicole Smith's lawyers say, hey, why don't you file bankruptcy? and invoke federal jurisdiction because one of the things that bankruptcy law does is it says, let's just bring, if, if you've got lawsuits all over the country, you file bankruptcy in Delaware, all those lawsuits are stayed and you have to go to Delaware and file your claims and stand in line and wait there. So to throw a monkey wrench into the whole probate thing, Anna Nicole Smith files uh, Chapter 11 bankruptcy. So then the brothers, the, 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 the sons, the brothers, who probably don't like her very much, um, say, wait a minute, what are we doing in a bankruptcy court? We didn't file bankruptcy. We're only here because she filed bankruptcy. And that doesn't seem right under, the, under uh, uh, federal principles of jurisdiction. Before that case gets to the Supreme Court, Anna Nicole Smith dies, right? And remember her boyfriend? What was his name? Same name as the shock jock, but a different guy, Howard Stern. Uh, but this guy's a lawyer, like in New York or somewhere, and, and if you're ever in the same room with him, when you leave, you want to take a shower. Um, and so this, this Howard Stern then substitutes in for Anna Nicole Smith, and the case becomes known as Stern v. Marshall. And the whole idea is, should a bankruptcy court be hearing a probate claim fight? And the Supreme Court came down with this terribly complicated decision that, that still 
um, plays in a lot of bankruptcy cases that says, no, that's not what the bankruptcy courts are there for. They're to adjudicate disputes between a whole bunch of creditors, to stay, to discharge. They're not to interfere with the probate court. So every 20 years or so, you get a ridiculously difficult decision like that that kind of questions bankruptcy jurisdiction, and then Congress has to scramble and, and prop up the house of cards. Now, what they've done to make it work is, <clears throat> and, 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 and one last point just to clarify the problem, What's the, what is the article of the U.S. Constitution that talks about judges? It's Article 3, right? Article 1 of the Constitution is the legislature. Article 2 of the Constitution is the executive. Article 3 is the judicial branch, right? So they stick, there shall be a uniform bankruptcy law throughout the several states in Article 1, in the legislative provision. But then they go two more articles over, and Article 3, they talk about judges and courts and federal courts and all those sorts of things. Well, let's see, are bankruptcy judges or federal judges? Are they Article are they Article One judges? This is even a debate now. You can walk across the street to the bankruptcy court, sit down with any bankruptcy judge and say, are you an Article One judge or are you an Article Three judge? And they don't know. Um, they, they, they don't know. In fact, one of the judges that I clerked for way back when, they give bankruptcy judges 14-year terms. And he was like 78 years old, and he'd just been renewed for a 14-year term. And he said, I guess that means I'm an Article II and nine-tenths judge. Uh, as, you know, as close to life tenure as possible. So that goes back and forth. What they do to, to sort of resolve that jurisdictional problem is, what they say is, all bankruptcy cases are actually filed in the district court, the Article III federal court, and by judicial rule are referred automatically over to the bankruptcy court. That's why some of you will remember, if you're my age, the bankruptcy judges used to be called bankruptcy referees. referees. Not because they wore striped shirts, but because the cases were referred to them. Um, so that's, so now, anybody that has a problem with bankruptcy <coughs> jurisdiction and raises Stern v. Marshall or Marathon Oil or any of those cases, you can get the, the, the referral removed, and you can go back to a full bore, full jurisdiction, Article Three district court judge and have him hear the case any way, shape, or form that he wants. So you can see the jurisdiction is kind of, it's, it's a little bit tenuous. Mushy. Yeah, it's mushy. We deal with it. Now, having said all of that, that's really intellectually interesting. I haven't had a case in 30 years that has to do with any of that jurisdictional stuff. You file bankruptcy, you go to the bankruptcy court. You file your same pleadings, it's the same sort of thing that goes on in the superior court, same sort of thing that goes in the district court. I've had two cases over the years where the, the referral was withdrawn up to the district court. Um, and in terms of appeals, you know, there's an appellate system that gets you in front of the Ninth Circuit and then up to the Supreme Court the same way other federal courts do. So it works. And then every once in a while, a crazy nut like Anna Nicole Smith comes along and messes it up. And, and I'm not sure that she even has the cognitive power from her grave to think, what an impact I've had on American juris <laughs> jurisprudence. Um, but that's sort of this chapter in, in all of that. Yeah. And I, it's sort of like Arizona had an interesting case. I don't know if you remember when they, and it, the predecessor, when um, it's now Mercy Care, but when Comcare was the REBA, they took the contract away from them. And they took it, they gave it over to um, value options. And Ted Williams 
the former health department director, was the director, and he argued that because they lost the contract, he filed for bankruptcy protection, and the state, and he actually got it, and then they walked away because the state wanted to take the money from them and give it because it had been on, you know, a state contract, and he argued because it was the sole contract that they bankrupted them, and they actually won the case, and they they, they were able to take like two three million dollars with them in assets because they said that he got the bankruptcy protection and then could reorganize under bankruptcy protection and created a new company. Well, I, I tell people bankruptcy is a land where straight things are crooked and crooked things are straight. And, and, and you chuckle, but the reason for that, there's a reason for that. You ever seen those pictures? You ever seen those pictures that they take subterranean pictures? What the Earth looks like from underground? You see, bankruptcy. Most litigation takes place with a presumption of solvency. There's some money. There's some bankruptcy takes place with a presumption of insolvency. So you're upside down from the very beginning, and you're looking at the world in a completely different way. And that's why, if you look at it like you normally would, it seems like straight things are crooked and crooked things are straight. It's a different world. It just requires a little bit of extra thought and a little bit of extra education on it. One last point to your point. Um, I've represented some of the state agencies over the years in, um, in bankruptcy cases, including access. And one of the things when you represent the state of Arizona you be very careful with is that the bankruptcy code does not act as a waiver of sovereign immunity. And if the state of Arizona wants to say, we're not playing in that court, they have the ability to do that. So you have to very carefully um, reserve that right of sovereign immunity because bankruptcy court doesn't necessarily have jurisdiction over the state of Arizona. Not sure how that would ever play in front of you all, but it's sort of interesting, lofty stuff that we, that we talk about. All right. Um, the supremacy clause we mentioned, bankruptcy courts are units of the federal district court, we mentioned that. Now, um, what you're going to most often see and what you most often hear about in the newspapers and so forth are chapter 7, chapter 11, and chapter 13. Those are chapters of title 11, okay? There's a, there's, there are several chapters. There's a chapter 1, it wouldn't surprise you to hear its definitions. Chapter 3 does certain things, chapter 5 does certain things that are applicable through all the other chapters. But chapter seven is where you go if you want a discharge and, and want to quickly move on with your life. Chapter 11 is what more often you see corporations filing chapter 11. So big companies will file chapter 11 and say, look, we need a timeout. We need to adjust our debts. Um, we can save jobs this way. We can get back on our feet. You just need to give us a little bit of time and maybe write down some of what we, what, what we owe. Uh, and I'll give you an example of that, another example of that in a minute. Chapter 13, you're probably going to see a lot of those. Um, particularly because in 2005, Congress kind of tweaked the bankruptcy law to force more Chapter 13s at the expense of fewer Chapter 7s. Chapter 7, here's what happens. Mom, pop, kettle, run up all their debts and uh, can't, can't make the payments anymore and they're in big trouble. So they file for Chapter 7. And it takes about 100 days, but at the end of 100 days, if nobody's contested their debts and they've turned over all their exemptions and those sorts of things, they will get a discharge and be done. And the discharge just basically says, we haven't washed the debts clean. The debts are still there. You just can't collect them against mom, pop, kettle, because they've gotten their discharge. Now, if there are third-party guarantors, 
If there are other people you can look to, the debts are still there. It's just the discharge is like an injunction <coughs> against collecting from the person that gets the discharge. Okay. Now, what Congress did in 2005, and there was a big debate, and, and in fact, there's, there's, uh, if, if you'll indulge me, there's some really interesting history behind I'm just, this. Sure. I'm not sure I really understand. So if you're saying the debt isn't discharged, but you can't collect them against them. Correct. So who would you collect against, theoretically, if you could even? All right. Steve and I go down by a boat, okay? And we both sign on the line, and we have an agreement between us that, that I'm going to use it on Saturdays, and he's going to use it on Sundays, okay? And we make the payments, and then all of a sudden I run into some financial troubles, and I file bankruptcy. And I say, I don't want that stinking boat anymore. And um, now we're behind on the payments and so forth. When I get my discharge, the, the, the lender on the bank, on the boat, you know, holds the note on the boat, cannot come against me. But guess who they go against? Me. Steve. Okay. So, so the, the debt, the discharge is this, it's an injunction. It per, it's like this thing that protects me from, from um, uh, collection efforts. But it doesn't mean that the debt is disappeared. But if you're, if you're so, so if it's a credit card and it's just you and your wife and you you get that debt discharged and there's nobody else to collect from, right? That's I mean, true. That's correct. Debt, that, but, so that means that the, the whoever owns it has to carry, I mean, they have to carry the liability. They can't just... No, the, the, I mean, the lenders know the, the, that if, if it's a sole borrower and there's a discharge, they write those things off. They're, I mean, they're done because there's nobody else to collect it against. But I didn't want you to have the misimpression that a lot of people do that when there's a discharge in it, it actually expunges the debt. It doesn't. The debt still exists. You just can't collect it against the discharged person. And the and and the you know the best example is when you have joint liability and you have a non-bankrupt party that you can still collect against. Well, then let me let me you ask you. <laughs> You're mean, Steve. What, what, we, what we get is a common thing, and so it's been sort of confusing to me because I've always taken the position we will get a notice of bankruptcy, and then the the plaintiff attorney will also file a motion to dismiss. And I've taken the position: no, I can't dismiss. I'm not dismissing your case because there's a stay. You're asking me to take an action on a case when there's a stay. I don't know if that's right or wrong, but that's the position I've taken that, that because I haven't understood why they want it dismissed, but it just doesn't feel right to me. If there's a stay, my feeling is stay means stay. Don't do anything. I, I promise you we're going to answer that one in the, in the context of the stay, and I think it's better answered there because okay. there's some moving parts. Is it still the case that they could renew the debt or if they make another payment on it or, or something? Very interesting law in that area. If there is an unequivocal statement that you owe or will pay the money after there's been a discharge, it's now a valid debt again. Okay. Same, same rule as against the statute of limitations. So say there's an open contract, invoices, three-year statute of limitations, three years of run, guy that owes the money says, hey, I know we owe the money, we intend to pay it. Statute of limitations is that is is eliminated. New statute starts running. <coughs> so yeah, yeah, and that and and there are debates about that. Is there consideration for that? All of that, but this, but but our court of appeals, Arizona court of appeals, has been pretty clear. That's the law. Okay, so back to chapter seven. Uh, basically, what happens is mom, pa, kettle file their chapter seven. They have 
uh, a Ma Kettle has a really nice fur coat, and Pa Kettle has a, um, a, a, a collector's um, a, a rifle that's worth a couple of thousand bucks because it's a collector's edition. Okay? Um, they file bankruptcy. They owe $20,000 to various and sundry creditors. When a Chapter 7 bankruptcy is filed, a trustee is automatically appointed. Um, these there are about a dozen or so trustees in the Phoenix area. They're independent businessmen and businesswomen who are under contract with the federal government to act as trustees. They get paid 60 bucks for every single case that they administer, and then they get a percentage of what they collect and liquidate. So the trustee looks at Ma Kettle's fine fur coat and says, you know what? Exemption allows you to exempt clothing, but not that fur coat. So the trustee takes the fur coat and sells it for a couple of thousand bucks, takes the rifle from Pa Kettle. The, the, the exemption statute says you do get a shotgun, um, but not that shotgun, because uh, it's too expensive. And so those things are sold, and the trustee's now got 5,000 bucks. Trustee pays himself his percentage. If he has a lawyer, he pays the lawyer's fees. Let's say that's a thousand bucks. He's now got four thousand dollars to pay twenty thousand dollars worth of debt. So that means everybody gets what? How many cents on the dollar? Twenty uh, cents. Twenty cents. So trustee makes a dividend. Twenty cents on the dollar. Case is closed. Mom, Pa, Kettle get their discharge. Off they go. Okay. That's Chapter Seven. Takes now. Now. One thing that Chapter 7 will do, and you might see this from time to time, is when a Chapter 7 is filed, there are, um, there's about 40 days until we have what's called the first meeting of creditors, which under the bankruptcy code is section 341. But it's a meeting of creditors where the creditors get to sit down at a table, the trustees up there, the mom and kettle are there, and the creditors get to say, hey, what happened? And the trustee does a pretty good job of making sure it doesn't get out of line. Um, the, the most interesting case like that I saw was years ago when there was a huge modeling agency that went into bankruptcy and there was a, a, a line of irate models who weren't paid uh, about a mile long waiting to holler at the man that suckered them into the contracts. But normally the, those first meeting of creditors are, uh, last about 10 minutes and they're not very heated. They're, they're, they're just they're kind of business-like. Um, that's about 40 days after you file. 60 days from that 40-day period, from that first meeting of creditors, anybody who thinks that they're, any creditor who thinks their debt was incurred by fraud or by something that, sh that bankruptcy shouldn't wash clean, criminal activity, uh, an assault, um, 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 uh, fraudulent uh, uh, financial statements. <coughs> Some of you will remember our, our honorable governor who lost his discharge because he had one set of financial statements for um, when he wanted to borrow money and he had another set of financial statements when he was lending money. And so they put those two together and they said these are so far apart that you've, you've defrauded banks and he lost, he lost his discharge. Now you can lose your discharge as to a particular debt Right? You cheated me, you lied to me, this debt shouldn't be forgiven. Or if the debtor is tainted, lies to everybody, then the full discharge could be lost. But those actions have to be brought by a complaint in the bankruptcy court within that 60-day window after the 341 meeting. So about 100 days out. That's why the discharge order is usually entered about 100 days after the bankruptcy is filed. So turn, turn with me to uh, my attachment. Let's 
city. I think I put it on the loop here. Uh, I think it's the first attachment. Yeah. It's the first attachment, but it's like, you see where it says history? Mm -hmm. So flip a couple pages back to where it says discharge of debt or like about a third of the page down. <coughs> so this is behind attachment one and it is the one, two, three, the fourth page behind attachment one. <coughs> Yeah, and you see it, discharge of debtor. Now, now, um, I was just fooling around in the in the public record, and I pulled the docket um, for maybe, I guess my long lost cousin Theodore Alden Shelley, who lives in Seligman, Arizona. It's a real person in a real case, um, and these folks filed bankruptcy uh, back in 2010, and they received their discharge. And you see here, it's ordered the debtors granted a discharge under Section 727 of Title 11, United States Code, signed by the Honorable Redfield T. Baum, uh, the judge who presided over the Coyotes hockey case. Um, and, 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 and so here's the discharge. Now, um, this is interesting for you because a discharge order like this lifts the automatic stay. Now, just tuck that away because we're going to come back to it. But that's the stays over. So if you if you want to think about the life of a stay in a bankruptcy case, when when these folks filed, and now flip to the first page of this um, of, of attachment one, what day did they file bankruptcy? September thirteenth. September thirteenth, <clears throat> Now, if you look in the in that little summary heading there. Just, let's go through that real quick. The, the, the first thing you see are those numbers there. 210BK29157. What that really means is that bankruptcy court is the second court, federal court, so that's where it gets two. The district court will get one. 10 is the year it was filed, right? BK, it's bankruptcy. So this is the 29,157th bankruptcy that was filed in Arizona that year. The judge is, is uh, Redfield T. Baum. Those are his initials. The debtors then are Theodore and Cynthia Shelley. What case, next line, case type, chapter seven. Are there any assets? No. So remember we talked about the fur coat and the, and the fancy rifle? The trustee didn't get any assets here. So all that means is the trustee gets a $60 fee for processing the case and, uh, and closing it up instead of the thousand bucks or so he might have made from selling the fur and the, and the rifle. Um, Okay, then we go down, it, you can see it was filed on the 13th, so what day did the automatic stay come into effect? Day 5 was filed. September 13th. <laughs> and then, um, right below that, debtor discharge. So what day did the bankruptcy stay expire? Right, so on New Year's Eve, they didn't have the protection to stay anymore. But what, what did they get in return for the stay being lifted? They got for that. The discharge. The discharge. And what's the discharge? That they don't have to pay any of their debt. Right. The dis but remember, the discharge is a permanent injunction. So in, in a certain sense, as to those debts that are discharged, that stay 
is permanent. Now, the, 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 the terminology that we use is different, but it's the same thing. You can't collect against the dead because there's a discharge. That discharge is a permanent stay that protects these individuals. Um, so let's see then, joint debtor, so that would be Mrs. Shelley. Uh, she was discharged the same day. And then the, it says date terminated. Now, it, you know, that's like another few months later. That just gives the court time to wrap up the case and close the case and the trustee to file his final report that I don't have any assets, that sort of thing. So this is an actual docket of, of the case and you can see the things that happened here. In fact, turn to page two of that docket, item number 16, and you see the trustee's report. So he says, I, I William Pierce, this is Bill Pierce, He's one of our trustees that lives up in Prescott. Having been appointed the trustee in this case report, I have neither received any property nor paid any money. I've made diligent efforts to find those things. I hereby certify that there isn't anything to distribute, and I hereby close this case. So in they go, out they come, they get their discharge. Trustee has a good look at them to see if they've got anything. They don't. Um, bankruptcy's over. Okay? Now, if one of the, the one of the creditors of these Shelleys sue them a year later in your court. They have the discharge. They they can't. So what do you do? What, procedurally, what do you do? You dismiss. If they're suing on a debt that was discharged. Okay. Now let me ask you this. That's exactly right. Go back to that first page where date filed is September 13th, debtors discharged of uh, December 28th, right? Mm -hmm. Let's suppose that the debt that's being sued on in front of you was incurred in August of 2010. When did they file? They filed in September. August of 2010 is the date of the debt. Probably. Don't they have to list them all? Don't they have to... They, they do have to list them. That's that's a, a, an area that's kind of tricky, too, because um, even 10 years later, if they forgot to list a debt, they can go back and reopen their bankruptcy and list it then oh. if there was no prejudice to that creditor, and that's, that's sort of a different angle. But but the, the point I want to get at is you draw a line. Any debt that was incurred before September 13th, the day they filed, gets discharged. <clears throat> But what if they went out and incurred a new debt on uh, on September 15th, two days after they filed bankruptcy, and then that case is brought in front of you, and they say, well, wait a minute, this debt was September 15th, we got our discharge two and a half months later, you ought to dismiss this case. Yeah, those were all debt prior to the 13th. Exactly. All debts in existence on the 13th, and what that means is is even even if there's not been a, leak, a lawsuit filed or a letter sent or a claim made or anything, if there was a car accident the day before, that debt gets discharged. Um, if there um, if there was just the idea that the debt might exist, so part of sometimes what bankruptcy judges do is they have to look back and say, all right, when was this debt actually incurred? Because it was incurred before the bankruptcy then uh, it gets discharged. If it was incurred the day after the bankruptcy, it doesn't get discharged. Yeah, yes, maybe you're going to get into this, but what if I know that I'm going to file for bankruptcy and I say, well, I might as well max this credit card and go out and, and have a good time. In 2004, you'd have been fine. 
In 2005, when Congress tightened up these laws, there, there, and this is what the trustee will look into. Um, any debts that were that were incurred within like 90 or 100 days, and I think there may be even an intent in there, uh, with intent to file bankruptcy, are not discharged. But that has to be adjudicated in the bankruptcy court. The presumption is they will be. But what happens is, guy, guy's got five thousand bucks left on his credit card. He knows knows he's going in. So all right, off to Hawaii we go, or off to Las Vegas, and and you chuckle. It happens. Um, or we buy the big screen TV, or what you know, whatever. Um, if you can show that that was within that applicable window, then that debt doesn't get discharged. But the but that's but I'll say real quick. That's never for you to determine because discharge is the unique jurisdiction of the bankruptcy court. Nobody else gets to make that decision. So you know, the bankruptcy court just the bankruptcy court needs to adjudicate whether you know about the, the time that you max that credit card and your intent correct and that kind of thing. C correct. So if a creditor brings something like that in front of you, I think what you do, and Steve, you correct me or Charlie, I think you you continue that hearing for like 90 days. And let's see where we are in 90 days and have them come back and tell you what's happened. At some point, you're probably going to dismiss. Would it be a lift stay that you'd be asking them to get? Well, it could be, but it would also be an adjudication of whether whether that debt is subject to the discharge. <clears throat> okay. Um, now, and as long as we're the there. The basic thing life. is, <laughs> when you doubt, wait and let the bankruptcy court tell you you can go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, wait. And and um, uh, or or call Steve or call Charlie or every once in a while there's there's some justice of the peace in Pinal County that has my name and he calls me um, and I don't know if that's against the rules. Um, no, it's not against the rules. I'm glad he calls because it's not but, against the rules to consult an attorney who has nothing to do with the case that you're on. If you call a friendly attorney to talk about it and he's not related to the case. You can definitely pick his brain. Okay. I, and I would In fact, say, you should. And I would say, who, and, and, and I'll find this out and get back to Charlie, I'll bet you our bankruptcy judges would be happy to take a phone call or two from you as well. The, chief, the, the current chief judge, Dan Collins, is relatively new. He's a fine choice, a wonderful judge. He's a very good lawyer, but he's one of those that, he was a really good lawyer in town, he's even a better judge. And he's doing some very interesting things at the bankruptcy court these days, and uh, he might be willing to, to, to take some calls. So, Charlie, I'll check with Dan and see see if that's an avenue that you guys may want to want to have. Oh, I have called Jeff Baum. Have you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but Baum's now retired, but he's 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 but anxious. I hear it before. Him, yeah. So, yeah. Well, he's anxious to you know he's he makes himself available for mediations and things like that. He still wants to be active. But the the way the bankruptcy court the code is written, I mean, technically, if that issue is raised, it's, it's the plaintiff's responsibility to know whether that's occurred or not. That, that, I mean, as a judge, I can just look at the plaintiff and say, I mean, this is technically, this is your responsibility because they can be sued under the bankruptcy code for bad faith and proceeding whatever, right? So, I mean, it's really the plaintiff has the burden to know whether there's been discharged, whether they're pursuing a debt that's gone or whatever. So, it, right? it, it, yeah, if I wasn't if I wasn't really certain, and I had that situation, what I would say to the plaintiff is, I'm going to continue this for 90 days, and when I look at it again in 90 days, the presumption is I'm going to dismiss this. 
because your relief is over the bankruptcy court. Like what Keith's question was is before a plaintiff files suit against a defendant, does the plaintiff have to ensure that the defendant hasn't been discharged? Um, I don't think any plaintiff who filed suit against somebody who went in bankruptcy a year or two ago um, is obligated to check the bankruptcy registry to see if their defendant is there. I think that shifts the burden to the defendant just to show them the discharge. Hey, you sued me. Here's my discharge. Here's the case number. Um, I'll, I'll allow you to voluntarily dismiss before I answer, but if I answer and I've shown you this, then I've incurred some costs. And if, uh, if I, I suppose if I were you, and they showed them ahead of time, um, and, and the plaintiff was stubborn and said, I'm going to make you appear anyway, and they have to file a motion to dismiss when it's clear there's a bankruptcy, I probably would award a fees, fees against plaintiff's counsel for, 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 for not quickly yielding the way that you're supposed to do the bankruptcy. Does it work to evictions in, in cases where there's been a bankruptcy stay? If the uh, individual uh, seeking the suit for eviction removes any costs associated with that, are we still able to go forward with eviction, or would the stay still be in effect? Um, the, the, the stay's in effect. Um, but does the stay have relevance if no costs are being sought, if they're just seeking uh, possession of property? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and I and I've seen that. I, in fact, you mentioned Judge Baum. I've seen Judge Baum, uh, who's who's a very very good judge, but also has a, a, a wonderful tender heart. And I remember he said to a lady, "Madam, I have continued this stay hearing now for 120 days. There isn't anything else I can do under the law. You're living in the property and not paying. I've got to lift the stay." So um, so he lifts the stay. But all that does is open the door so that you can sign the eviction order when you're comfortable that, that it can otherwise be signed. Is, now, oh, sorry, go ahead. Now all the rent that's incurred since the stay was in place can then be sought, correct? It can be sought in the bankruptcy court. Um, but not for, not, I mean, not for me, but I mean, they filed, like, so, well, like on this one, the 13th they filed, the plaintiff can then go, okay, well, all the rent that's owed from the 14th on while they're, while we're under the stay, I can go after that because that's, I think that was, uh, rental time occurred after you filed. The, the, the answer to that is, I think all of that is stayed. Um, and, and from that date forward, and you run into the same thing with homeowner associations, from, from, from the day after the bankruptcy forward, that money can eventually be collected but not while the stay's in place. Well, the, 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 the idea of the stay is, uh, let's time out, let's slow down and, and, and figure out what's going to happen here. But then afterwards, yeah, I think they could come back and get a judgment from September 14th forward for the rent. In um, bankruptcy court? No, I would say in, I would say in your court, um, be, because, oh, right. okay. because bankruptcy court's not going to have any jurisdiction, that's post-petition. Okay. Um, and and if, so if it was properly pled, if the lawyer did it right, I think I think the lawyer could say, look, I'm not asking for anything from before September 13th, but I am asking for the 90 days that they occupied after September 13th, and now and I'm now asking it from you after the stay's been lifted. So I filed on December 29th, 
or sometime in January when the state doesn't prohibit me from doing that. And, 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 I, and I haven't seen that done with the individuals just because it's not a world that I run in, but I have seen that the clever home, clever, if you want to call them that, homeowner association lawyers are doing that sort of thing. Now there was, what we get, and this is confusing and maybe you could address it is, um, they're filing for an eviction, non-payment of rent, and they, the person shows up in court and they hand the plaintiff attorney the, the um, notice of bankruptcy. So it stays the rent portion, but then they, they, they're saying it's a judgment for, for possession. So then somehow they go to superior court, they go back to the bankruptcy court, and I don't know what they do exactly, but then so that they can get possession, so they're like, they're like separating possession from the rent issue. Because they go and they file something, and then they come back, and then they, maybe Steve understands it. There's, there's, there's two different, they, they'll come into the bank, they'll come in in certain cases, and they'll say, I got the notice of bankruptcy. And then the plaintiff attorney will say, well, we're going to still get possession, because then they're going to go file they something else in bankruptcy court. And then sometimes they end up being able to evict them. It's not the money, but they're getting the possession of the property, and I don't know how. I don't. I, I, I don't either, because I think the state protects them, protects their right of possession, um, and I think it's I, I, I think it's a, a miscarriage of justice to dispossess them while it stays in place. Steve, do you understand what they do sometimes? They lift well, stay is the only way yeah, I know. They file for a lift. Now, bankruptcy's pending. But, now, but if we sign the the writ, that's a before, different, different question. I don't want to get into mm -hmm. Gerald's thing, but if you sign the judgment on one day and they file the following day, then you can sign, sign the, the restitution. Okay. I just have one question. But I'm if, they, if the, you sign the judgment at 11 a.m. Yeah. and they come in showing they filed at 10 a.m., don't sign the restitution. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just just a technical matter. The Ninth Circuit's made it really clear that anything that's done while the stays in place is void, V-O-I-D. And and there are some circumstances we won't get into them where the lawyers say, no, wait a minute, it's voidable, not just void. And the Ninth Circuit says, no, it's void. Okay. So anything that you know, I mean, you wouldn't do it knowing it was in place, but even if you did, it's it's void. The problem is, and where you get into the voidable argument is. Well, yeah, it may be void, but until somebody gets a judge to say that it's void, it's voidable. Um, but the Ninth Circuit said, don't even go there. It's void. Uh, okay, back here. So I have a question um, about uh, the proper source for awarding fees in these uh -huh. situations. Uh -huh. So you have, I've seen numerous HOA attorneys, and I'm glad that you mentioned that, who claim checking bankruptcy docket for information about their owner uh, pursuing events that are occurring in the bankruptcy and then they're coming into our courts and asking for fees associated with those uh, duties. My belief is that those fees are appropriated toward the bankruptcy court if there truly is a bankruptcy and they are a creditor. Do you have an opinion? Um, I would throw this on Steve and Charlie. There's a U.S. Supreme Court case in the last eight years called Travelers. And I think the Supreme Court said bankrupt there, there was sort of an old-fashioned notion that bankruptcy altered rights to attorney's fees and things like that 
The Supreme Court basically said, no, it doesn't. If there's a right under state law to attorney's fees, the bankruptcy doesn't alter that. I, I would, I'd be hesitant if I were you to, to go against what, what you're thinking. But if the lawyer properly briefed that case and I looked at the traveler's case, I might be persuaded that, that if I were you, I had the jurisdiction to award those fees. How, do, how are we certain then that they haven't claimed them or the trustee isn't going to award them in the bankruptcy and we're also awarding them? Um, I, I don't know that you need to look into that. I think it's probably a fair presumption that they're not going to, if they get anything out of bankruptcy, it's cents on the dollar. And so let's suppose that the bankruptcy court awards them $200 of attorney's fees. Trustee pays 10 cents on the dollar, so they get 20 bucks. Um, you, you might, if, if you had everything properly in front of you, you might then say, well, they got 20 towards the 200, I'll give them another 180. On the all actions being void. In a scenario where an action was done, say, on the 11th, bankruptcy was filed on the 23rd, and they're coming to us to ask for a set-aside because our action was void. Are we the proper party to be setting things aside, or is that supposed to go through a different court? That's the, that is the jurisdiction of the bankruptcy court. To, and, and we get into those fights. Was the lease terminated before the bankruptcy was filed? Remember the example I gave you with the foreclosure? If there's some question, that, that is, the jurisdiction is uniquely in the bankruptcy court to determine whether it's within the purview of, of the bankruptcy So to clarify, we don't have the jurisdiction to void any of our own actions that has to go through bankruptcy court? Okay. Well, let me think about that. I, I mean, I think you could voluntarily say, look, the stay was in place, this order I entered was void, and I'm now withdrawing it. I think you can do that. I think you could Well, from a practical stay. point, would that be us signing off for a motion to set aside? Would that be equivalent to us voiding the action? I don't think you should do it while the stay's in place, because while the stay's in place, you should well, do no, so, so basically, we did a judgment. So we did a judgment on the 11th. We didn't know they were in bankruptcy. They, they were in bankruptcy right. in February. We did it in March. They're saying, what you did was wrong. Do we need to set that aside so it's void, because it, it should, nothing should have happened, or should we leave it alone and let the bankruptcy court handle it? Uh, I'd probably, I would probably advise that you set it aside if you know that because it's just a matter of public policy having orders out there that, that are misleading. Um, and you've got an order that you know is void, I'd probably just void it real quick. I, um, I mean, that might be a technical violation of the stay, but I think that's, it's better for the world to have an acknowledged void order than an unacknowledged void order where somebody could do some mischief. But on the, the, the notice, because this, I think, has been confusing some of the courts, we have to officially get the notice, and maybe you can address this. We kind of track this. We get these notices from bankruptcy court all the time because they list these cases. So I contacted um, Superior Court Clerk's Office, and I contacted the bankruptcy court, and I contacted the clerk of the bankruptcy court, and all of them were in agreement that basically you don't have to do anything with those notices, that, that, that it's not an official anything. It comes out of Tennessee, and we actually have them going to a, just, we, you can file with them if any of your courts want to know. You can file, and you can have them email to you instead of them even sending you. And what we were told is, don't really do anything with them. You have to get the notice from one of the parties. I mean, you have to get an official notice filed before you take any action. That you shouldn't do anything with those 
notices coming out of out of Tennessee or wherever they come from because they may have listed a case in your court or listed San Marcos or something. And criminal criminal can't be discharged anyways. So I mean if they list a criminal they owe you a fine, they can't be discharged in bankruptcy. So am I am I understanding this right? That's what we were told by the Superior Court, by the Bankruptcy Court, everything that really just don't do any, you know, we're just sending those because well, it's just named there and forget about it. Let's try this scenario. You've gotten a notice from a bankruptcy court that tells you that, that, that Smith's in bankruptcy. So now Jones sues Smith and neither Jones nor Smith knows about the bankruptcy and neither do their lawyers. But you kind of know about it. First hearing, I would say, I I would say, you you show them. Look, I understand there's a bankruptcy here. I'm going to continue this 60 days while you go sort out whether there's a stay in place. And I and I would get that off my calendar until somebody could come back and give you good information. But you've got a presumption of bankruptcy that tells you not to do anything. Well, see, we were we. The problem is they just they 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 just send them out. Sometimes they have case files. They don't have case files. I mean. That's why we were just putting them in, getting them sent to us electronically, and just storing them off to the side because that's what we were told. It's up to the parties. I mean, you don't don't do anything with this. But the part is the party's responsibility that they have to advise. Well, I, I think what you're saying is you you a bankruptcy will be filed. Then there are notices right. about different things. I don't think you care about those other notices. I, what you care about is the notice that the bankruptcy was filed and the notice that the stay was lifted. Everything else probably doesn't matter much to you. Those are the two operative documents that say stop, go. Right. And if I were doing an eviction and the defendant walked in and said, I filed bankruptcy before I came here today, whether or not he had documents on it, I would stop and tell the, tell the plaintiff to, to come back tomorrow and tell me if he's filed or not. Yep. Okay, can we get back on track? Yes. <laughs> we're, we're actually covering things that are here. Um, so we were on Chapter 7, and then that got us into some of the attachments. Chapter 11, I don't think we need to talk much about it. It's the same same stay and discharge things are going to apply in 11. Yes. Just one how quick lesson before we go. I see on 16, the assets exempt were 166,994, and the... Uh, uh, claims were 79. I, I'm assuming most of that would have to be a homestead. Is yeah, I'm going to guess. Likely? I'm going to guess that. Yeah, he, he, they had a homestead, and then they had, you know, a handful of other yeah. things. All right. Okay. But yeah, that's that's very perceptive. Okay, the difference between seven and thirteen is that seven you get in and out. Thirteen, you um, have to make usually five years worth of payments to the trustee. And the whole game that plays out in Chapter 13 is over a budget. Here's my budget. Here's what I have left at the end of the month. Whatever the difference between what my budget is and what I have left at the end of the month, I have to pay to the trustee for five years. The trustee puts that in the pot and then pays all creditors pro rata from that five-year pot that the trustee creates. Now, as I said, Congress in 2005 shifted things so that we see a lot more 13s and a lot fewer 7s. And the way they did that was um, having a, um, uh, a minimum income level. You, can't, you, you presumptively cannot qualify for Chapter 7 unless you're below a certain income level and it's 
thirty, thirty-five thousand adjusted for families, stuff like that. So a lot of people have trouble um, qualifying under Chapter Seven. Now that's a presumption. The, the bankruptcy judge will sometimes um, um, allow the presumption to be overturned or be rebutted if there are some extenuating circumstances, so that people can find their way into Seven. But more often than not, they get pushed into Thirteen, where they then have to do this five-year plan, and you know. People can debate about what's Congress thinking and is it good pu public policy and all of that and whether, whether some agree and some don't agree. I think the thinking behind that is, look, you got somebody who's you know, who's not really who's had some trouble with their finances for whatever reason. Sometimes it's medical bills, sometimes it's an accident, sometimes it's they're not careful. Whatever the reason is, maybe it it would be helpful for them if we gave them like a five-year deal where you know what you gotta be really careful with this stuff and now now maybe we've got some habits that are set and maybe the the debtors are are going to be rehabilitated and more um, um, careful with their funds going forward so that's that's what you see behind 13 the stay in 13 can can go on and on and on and on for five years because as long as they're making payments and they're in their 13 that stays in place when they make their last payment, they get their discharge. So instead of seeing the discharge three months or four months or five months like you see in Chapter 7, in Chapter 13, the discharge would come like five years later. Now, having said that, I think the statistics are that only about half of Chapter 13 cases that get filed actually get confirmed, I mean approved, and only half of those are terminal. So you only have one out of four 13s that actually go the, the full distance. They either convert into sevens or people go underground or who knows. Um, but that's the, the, um, the, I think Congress is trying to do, and judges, bankruptcy judges bend over backwards to keep people in their 13 plans. They'll give them a moratorium that will give you two months off. We'll tack the two months at the end of the five. They do all sorts of, of gymnastics to try to keep them in their 13 to, to rehabilitate them. And even still, it's, there's not a terribly successful. Um, so, so basically, a Chapter 13 is like an extended payment plate. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Okay. Now, now on to the stay. We've pretty much covered the stay, but so you're seeing some of these things for the for the, the second time. But now we're on page four of the outline, and this is the actual code section. We talk about 362, section 362, that in 362 subsection A invokes the automatic stay and says here are all the things that the automatic stay prevents. I'm going to jump ahead then come back. B is, so flip the page, B are the exceptions to the automatic stay and you, are, you intuitively know them. Um, so what's the first one there? Criminal yeah, criminal proceedings. What's the set now? The second one's really long, but what what does the second one really mean? Fines. You can assess fines. It can mean it can mean fines. It's regulatory conduct. So like guy guy has guy's business is um, uh, to change oil automobiles, and he's got a nice little hole out back behind where he dumps the old oil. <laughs> well, I just filed bankruptcy. I get, a, I get the protection of the stay. I get to do this for another 60 days. <coughs> okay. It's that B2 that allows police and regulatory power to override the stay so that somebody can't hide behind the protection of the stay and do something that they shouldn't be doing. Okay? I think in the, 
you said uh, hazard. What about a swimming pool? Is there a situation where there would be a lot of search warrants for swimming pool problems? I don't know what that has. Any I, I think, yeah, that goes to health and safety. I don't think That's the state it. protects that at all. I, I would think, you know, I, I mean, and think about this, just public policy. What if, you know, what if there's no water in there and kid falls in, three-year-old falls in? Well, the state protected that. No, it didn't. Actually, the only thing the search warrant group is doing is letting people go in to their backyards to treat for mosquitoes. Is that so, what it is? Yeah. That's what so even are. then, they, uh, it's clearly not going to be stayed by that. Yeah. Yeah. Nope. yeah. Or 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 a thousand cats. You know, the state, the cat, the state's <laughs> not going to protect a cat, a bunch of cats. You mentioned the state and the approval when we're dealing with the evictions. Uh, and someone's being accused of, say, being a serial file, where they'll just go, they'll file, they'll come back, and, and they've done it a couple times. How quickly are those typically approved or disapproved as far as <clears throat> moving forward? You, you, you see that. The bankruptcy court is, is really quick to find serial filers. And what you'll get is on the second or the third, if it seems abusive, bankruptcy judge will enter an order you may not file bankruptcy again without leave of this court. And, 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 and so that's, uh, and, 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 and you, see, you, you see that, because um, there are serial filers out there, and then there are you know, four guys that live in one house, and they, they take turns getting the benefit of the state, so that now it's a year later after they haven't paid any, any rent, that each one of them has, you know, has filed a bankruptcy. You see crazy stuff like that. And the bankruptcy courts are pretty good at responding to creditors' motions to prevent those sorts of abuses. But they have to motion in the bankruptcy yeah. court. Yeah, it's not your worry. Yeah, it's not your worry. That's that's where I think you say I'm continuing this for 30 days or 60 days, and the bankruptcy courts got to got to deal with the serial file. You you don't have the jurisdiction to ignore that. I, I appreciate that. It's it's not my concern. Where where I'm seeing it is it'd be one serial file and the other person's a pro per, where. They don't know what they're doing. They don't understand the bankruptcy court. They don't understand what's happening. You mean the landlord's appropriate? Right. Sir, you probably need to hire an attorney. And that's a bankruptcy attorney. attorney. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sir, bankruptcy is an area where straight things are crooked and crooked things are straight. You need to hire a lawyer. On, on the instance of Mon Pa Kettle, if they're a creditor and they've come and they file an action, whether it's a small claims or regular civil, and Defendant comes in and says, "Look, I, you know, I filed bankruptcy. Here's my filing. Here's my discharge. This was within it. You don't have any jurisdiction." Mom, Pa Kettle said, "Hey, we didn't know. We had no idea. We're unrepresented. We've got a three thousand dollar debt. We want our judgment. We're here. Give us our judgment." You say, "No, go back to bankruptcy court. Reopen it. Figure it out yourself." Okay. Yeah, the, I mean, the answer to that is file a proof of claim in bankruptcy court, and that allows you to participate in the dividend that the trustee pays out if there is one at the end of the case. And then that period of time for the look back is how long? I'm, I'm not, I've lost. I'm lost. Is it forever? Oh, that yeah. Once the bankruptcy existed, any creditor within that window forever oh, yeah. has go to back go back. Oh, yeah, 20 years. Okay. You know, I mean, the statute of limitations problems, but yeah, it goes back forever. This gets back to them listing the claims, don't they? Isn't there some? I mean, Monk, the, the creditors don't don't know unless they get some sort of notice. And, and that goes to just basic due process under the Constitution. that You have a right to, to be notified. The bankruptcy court will sort that out. If they didn't list that creditor, then Mom Pa Kettle need to go back to their bankruptcy case and, and list that creditor. 
um, or somehow get the bankruptcy court to acknowledge that that creditor, um, that that debt is discharged. And there are different ways to do it, but it, it shouldn't be very hard. So but apparently, it's not, it's, not apparently it's not a big deal for them to go back and say, oh, I forgot what this, these other creditors do. No, it's, no, it's not. It, it, in fact, the bankruptcy code says you can reopen a case years later to, to um, amend your, your schedule of, of creditors. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay, so now back to, so, so we sort of covered the exceptions, yeah. Do, do we want to take a 10-minute break now or um, finish Gerald's presentation? I'll bet we can be done in 10 to 15 minutes. Then, okay. That's good. You want to do that? Okay, so, we've, so, so you, you intuitively understand what's exempted from the state, police regulatory power, that sort of stuff, criminal stuff. Now, what, where it gets a little tricky on what is caught by the state, now we're back to subsection A. <clears throat> that, that small one is actions against the debtor. And that sometimes gets a little bit confusing because what if now Mom Pa Kettle filed bankruptcy, but now Mom and Pa Kettle are suing their neighbors who owe money. Is that lawsuit state? Isn't it the property of the trustee? <laughs> what, what do you think the answer to that is? You know, okay, we've talked about it. What's the property of the trustee if what? If the trustee wants it. Okay, that's, that's one, but if, if the, it preceded the filing. Perfect, perfect. It, okay, so, so now we're September 13th, right? If neighbors trespassed against Mom and Pa Kettle on the 12th, and there's a $10,000 claim for that trespass, what it, you know, whatever it hypothetically is, that claim belongs to the trustee. If if neighbors trespass on the 14th, that claim belongs to Mom and Pa Kettle. So all of a sudden, neighbors are going to come and say, hey, Mom and Pa Kettle are in bankruptcy. Well, when did the claim arise? Well, it's after the bankruptcy. It belongs to Mom and Pa Kettle. They can do what they want with it. It comes that comes to the very simple example of um, uh, the Smith. Um, Smith files bankruptcy on Tuesday, okay? On Wednesday, Smith goes down to the park and shines a guy's shoes and makes five bucks. He then takes the five bucks and buys a lottery ticket. Ten million dollars. Who, who does the ten million bucks belong to? Smith. Because it all postdates the bankruptcy, right? The work for the money. <laughs> now, if, if he earns the money the day before and then buy, buys the, the lottery ticket the day before, it all goes into the bankruptcy. So it's so the same thing with the claim. And where you see that a lot is somebody gets in a car accident, so they have a claim against their insurer, and then that screws up their work, and then they go into bankruptcy. And so who does that claim belong to? The trustees usually jump in and will adjudicate them, but they also recognize that we need Smith here to to breathe some life into this case. So they usually cut a deal. Smith, you take a third after, you know, we'll, and, and so they figure out some way to do that, and that gets commonly done. All right? That's probably enough for the, the, the bankruptcy stay. Uh, we talked about, okay, go to, go to the first slide. Okay, wait, wait, let, let's um, back to uh -huh. this, um, page four, but the automatic stay uh, includes an act to obtain possession of property of the estate or of property from the estate. Just to point that out. Yeah, well that, that goes back to your possession convictions <coughs> thing. So so it doesn't matter if they want money or for, for possession, the stay prohibits any action down that road. The, the, there is an old 
silly old adage that says the state protects anything that would make a creditor smile. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. This I think you probably covered this, but does, is a state relevant to uh, immediates that have nothing to do with money? If there's alleged criminal activity, no. So that with immediate, we can go forward. No, no. In immediate possession would still be state. If it was criminal activity, if it wasn't, if it wasn't a, you know, something to do with money, you're having an eviction. The eviction is brought because this person is selling meth from the apartment. And they file bankruptcy. I, isn't, aren't you innocent until proven guilty in this country on criminal matters? You, this is not a civil Yeah, we're not. Well, I know we're that, not, but a, yeah, we're not. We don't care about the criminal matter. The question is, do they have? It's just an allegation of criminality. It's not a. And, and, so, and the point, though, is that if they are violating, necessarily have to be an immediate. If they're violating, you know, if they if their conduct is against the apartment complex's rules, if they have a. You know, a pit bull there, and, and they're not supposed to have one. And they refuse but to get rid of it. As you understand, it doesn't matter. The, basically, the contract, which is civil, is is void, or at least stayed all action. Well, judges, judges, when in doubt, wait for the plaintiff to get a lift stay. Right. And, and in that situation, that Tyler. Is your safe harbor. It, 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 I mean, if, if a person is, is arrested for selling meth, it would be kind of amazing to get in there and immediately file bankruptcy before they, they come before they're you in jail. because right, yeah, they're, they're in set jail. they're so set within a couple of and days. And if they're in jail, they're not selling meth from the apartment or filing so bankruptcy. So let the attorney go and get a lift stay, and they'll get it on an emergency basis from the bankruptcy court based on the allegations of the meth. Gotcha. But don't you go risking yourself being held in contempt of the bankruptcy court? Gotcha. Yeah. So that would apply to all the other apartment uh, rules. Yeah. <laughs> I would say. Fights, I would say yes. All fights and, and I would say yes if if right. if they file bankruptcy, that's a reason for an expedited hearing in the bankruptcy court to get the stay lifted. Yeah. By by the way, the bankruptcy judges are obligated to hear those very quickly. They've got to hear stay relief motions within 30 days, and they have to terminate them within 30 days of the 30 days. And normally they cut those numbers in half, so normally on a stay relief motion, you're in front of the bankruptcy judge on a preliminary hearing within 15 days. And, and at that time, the debtor has to have a really good reason to leave the stay in place. And if it is, well, I love my pit bull, I think the judge is going to lift the stay. So what you really do, what Steve is saying, is you're really just deferring to the bankruptcy judge who handles these all the time, and he can do it pretty quickly. But see, the problem is, his idea quickly is not our idea. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, Gerald, uh, okay. Yeah, 15 days is quick in our world, yeah. and, and it's a long and time. A, a bankruptcy yeah. case is resolved in justice court nine days after it's filed. <laughs> There's a judgment. Nine days. That's how long, and that includes service of process. You mean yeah. you mean an eviction case? Okay, so yeah. Gerald, uh, tenant files bankruptcy. Um, the next day, they get arrested for selling meth. Does the state prevent uh, um, an eviction for that? Um, yeah, the eviction, yes. The the event occurred after the filing of the bankruptcy state. Yeah. The the stay still in place. The stay is still in place. It's not protecting the event, but it's protecting the individual's right to possession during while the stay is in place. I would say the answer is the, the stay prevents me from evicting this gentleman right now 
if you think you need to run over to bankruptcy court and you okay. want me to set this 20 days out and you can get be back in 15, fine, go back in 20 days. So as Judge McMurray said, let let the landlord get a lift stay. Okay. But, but, but that kind of flies in the face of, the, of an auto accident occurring after the after the day of the stay. I mean, if, if, that's, if the date of the filing is a determining factor, what? then conduct after that day would seem to be subject to Yeah, I, I will. Let, let me try to draw the distinction this way. The, that, that analysis goes to whether it's who, who the property belongs to. If it's before, it belongs to the trustee. If it's after, it belongs to the debtor. What we're trying to do right now is say, wait a minute, that when a bankruptcy case is filed, there's this stay that pops up. The stay's not going to stay in place forever, but it's there for 60, 100 days until somebody runs to the bankruptcy court. So because it's temporary in nature, we'll, we'll defer to the bankruptcy court. On property issues, it, it's, there's a bright line and it is determined, and I think, I think you can go forward until somebody tells you otherwise. That's, that's the way I would look at it. All right, let's try to... Um, move on, page 7. I think these are just things okay, we uh, probably uh, already covered. Well, yeah, Charlie? There's an important point on the bottom of page 5 uh -huh. that with respect to fines that you know, I would put a star, a big star by the practical application that the fine can be assessed during the stay, but you can't collect unless it's voluntary. Yeah, I think that's good advice. Um, and then, and then on page six, I think the the, the, the asterisk, what's marked with the asterisk, is worth a, a, a note, and that is, you um, you sometimes see that a bankruptcy petition is filed, and then the debtor. The bankrupt doesn't file their schedules and statements. And if they don't get the, all of the documents in within 15 days, then the case will abort and it'll be dismissed. Um, a vast majority of those cases dismissed in that fashion get reinstated within the next three or four days when the paperwork is filed and the judge is asked to reinstate the case. So, so you, you, you may want to look at the, well, wait a minute, the case was filed two weeks ago and it was just dismissed two days ago. Well, why was it dismissed? I'd, I would I would almost act at that point as if, you know what, I think the state could, could be in place. I think they're going to reinstate this. And sometimes when the judges sign those orders, they reinstate them ab initio back to the original date of filing. So that even though you may have had two days when the stay wasn't in place, it wasn't in place, because it goes reverts back, it now puts that stay in place. So I, that's where I would say, you know what, Let's come back in 30 days and see what the status of this dismissal is. Um, okay, we talked about the discharge and what that means. Um, and we talked about the other things on 7 and also on 8. We talked about the 3 to 5 years for Chapter 13. Real quick with the attachments, we got through, through number 1. Um, okay, on the fourth page of number 1 is that discharge that I had to look at. This, this is really important to debtors because what they do is, when, as soon as this discharge is entered, they run down to all the used automobile uh, dealers on McDowell and they show them their discharge 
and look, I'm a clean man. I, I don't have all these debts anymore, and those guys sell them cars. Um, and, and, and if you have insomnia and you're watching commercials at 3 o'clock in the morning, percent in <laughs> in the morning you know, bankruptcy, come on in. Well, this is what's what they're talking about. Okay, page five on attachment number one is just is sort of a good explanation for you of, cha of chapter seven case, and you may want to just keep that away in case um, that you're feeling a little bit rusty on anything that we've talked about. Uh, let's see, attachment two, whoops, is the same thing. Sorry, I guess it got in there twice. It, I meant it to be attachment two, I didn't mean it to be in one. Three, uh, three is a chapter 13 plan. So you see that Judge Curley has signed this up at the top, and this is a, an order confirming a chapter 13 plan. And so if you just look at it quickly, this guy's going to pay $10,000 the first month and then $360 for the next 60 months for his plan. And, and if you look, tucked in here, page 2, uh, paragraph 2, small d, look at that one. That's huge, but it's just buried in here. The property located on 43rd Street has been surrendered. No payments will be made. The automatic stay with respect to such property is vacated. The property is deemed abandoned. Okay, vacating the stay is the same thing as lifting the stay, modifying the stay. There are a thousand words that, that lawyers and judges use to say that the stay is out of the way. You hear lifting, you hear the code says modified, so I try to use what the code says. But vacated is appropriate too. So, so the fact that the stay is vacated on the 43rd Street property means that the lender can foreclose whenever they want. Why then do you need to say abandoned? What additionally does that mean? They've already been evicted. They're not in the property. Okay. Abandoned has, that's not the answer. Abandoned has a very technical bankruptcy definition, which means the trustee doesn't want it anymore. It's been abandoned. I don't want your hound dog. Trustees have a rule. They don't take anything that eats. Um, um, horses, ostriches, those sorts of things. They're very leery of taking things that eat, so they abandon them. So this house has been abandoned, and what that means from the trustee's perspective is there's no equity in it, so I'm going to abandon it. I want to get rid of it. So, so the person could still live there? Person, in fact, this person still does. This is a little matter I'm trying to clean up. Um, uh, they, they still live there. So that's what a Chapter 13 um, confirmation plan order can look like. They take different forms. Then I think we go last, and that we touched on this. Attachment four are all the exemptions in Arizona. So, and I guess I want to put it this way: if if you um, if you go back 150 years, I think nearly every state in the union had the same exemption law, and it was this: you get your homestead, you get your shotgun, you get your Bible, and you get your hound dog. What about your wedding ring? Wedding rings came later, but basically those were the things that were protected. Now, you know, now you get as many chairs as you have kids, or beds as you have kids, and you get your clothing and things like that. And 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 the best thing to deal with exemptions, whether they come before, whatever context they come in front of you, is to remember this: the law of exemptions is liberally construed in favor of the debtor. So if somebody wants to yank that coat or those shoes. Or if you see that kind of petty stuff, and I've, I've seen wedding ring fights, I've seen that kind of stuff, 
you want to lean as hard as you can in favor of allowing the exemption. <coughs> Part of that is because we, we just don't want courts getting involved in whose tie that is, um, or whose VCR that is, or whether you know whether I can take away their computer. Um, you know, petty stuff. It, there, sh there should be an exemption somewhere, and you want to lean liberally in favor of it. Can I just ask, just sure. it's nothing we would ever deal with, and it's all bankruptcy, but I just was interested in this. On the page six, an annuity actually is exempt from bankruptcy, so they can't force you to sell an annuity to clear up debt? It, in, in certain amounts, yes, and same thing with life insurance policies. And remember, what, you're what we're dealing with here is, if we take too much stuff away from people, then they become, the government has to step in and give them welfare and help them out. So what we're balancing is, all right, creditors, you know what, we're, we're going to tell you you have to leave certain things alone. We want folks to be able to live their lives and have some dignity, even though they owe debts. We also don't want to strip them bare so that the government has to come in and take care of them. So some life insurance policies, 401ks, all those sorts of things. Things are exempt. I mean, I had a case years ago that, that didn't quite make it to the Supreme did make it to the Supreme Court. A couple of doctors had $10 million in their pensions, and they used that $10 million like it was their own personal bank. And then they filed bankruptcy to get out of some real estate deals, and the question was, wait a minute, the, the, the law says that those counts are exempt, but should they really be? Did they treat them as such? And uh, that was, Charlie, you might remember that. that was Dr. Garlikoff. I think we were practicing together in those days. Would you just but I mean, the, the question wasn't the size of what they put away. It's just whether or not they were treating it as a, reti a real retirement account. Correct. If it was, if they if they observed their P's and Q's about the provider, they could have a bazillion dollars in there. But no, that's one of the reasons OJ went to Florida. Yeah. Yeah. You but got it. When we do supplemental proceedings, they'll ask people to bring stuff in. Now, if they're trying to attach the wages you haven't filed for bankruptcy, can you? Can you attack somebody's annuities and um, I don't know if you know. So I, I, I owe the credit card company $5,000 and they ask me to bring in all this stuff and they find out I have an annuity. Can they, can they go after those funds if I'm not in bankruptcy? You know? the, the answer is the exemption rights protect you inside or outside of bankruptcy. Okay. So, so yeah, I mean, if, if, if something happens at my house and I get sued, and somebody wants to come after my 401k, I don't have to file bankruptcy to protect my 401k. It's protected by the Enabling Act that set it up. So the exemptions exist in Arizona, whether you're in bankruptcy or not. Okay. Good question. Well, that's all I have. Um, um, my, my hat's off to you guys, all the hard work you do, all the sorting out you do. It, it, uh, you're underappreciated. It, it is very much a part of a great republic to have people who are in the trenches doing the kind of work you're doing uh, to save fist fights and knife slashes and all the stuff that would happen if we didn't have some way to adjudicate our, our, our problems, and I appreciate your role in that regard. And, and happy to talk to you if you have a bankruptcy question. I don't, again, I don't, uh, Steve says it's not against the rules. I'm happy to take your calls if you have an obscure question. Just remind you before you go, any other questions for Gerald? Okay. Thank you. All right. Um, if you, if you can hit, hit the window around the corner to get your parking validated. Okay, I will do that. I'll walk you. All right. <coughs> you did meet some of us because I used your model, uh, panel, and I don't think we're <laughs>
staff and I had some young staff here. 